Are you ready? Hey everybody! Hey folks! Hello everybody! People in the back! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Without further ado! Without further ado! Okay, so without further ado, we're gonna get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're, we're gonna get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Kuntz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. And thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. The Inner Loop Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, and every other streaming site we could possibly find. It's true. <laughs> and if there's somewhere you'd like to hear the Inner Loop Radio where it isn't currently available, just shoot us an email at theinnerlooplit at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have an exciting hour of local literature planned for you. But first, for those of you who don't know, uh, The Inner Loop is a literary reading series for writers in the D.C. area to come and read their own work each month. Writers' experience varies from the absolute beginner to Pulitzer Prize winners, and they range in genre from poetry to fiction to nonfiction and everything in between. <laughs> and on the Interloop Radio, we like to give our listeners a sampling of some of those authors who read at our events, as well as going further in depth on the writing experience and discussing relevant topics to the writing life. On today's show, it's December, and that means family. It certainly does. <laughs> Whether you're going home for the holidays or staying home for the holidays, this time of year, our thoughts tend toward our family. And I have a gigantic family, and every other year, we all go home to Florida, where my parents live, and celebrate together. Well, I have the opposite, a very tiny family, <laughs> uh, and this year we'll be heading north to where uh, my brother and the babies are, so we... To Vermont, right? To Vermont, yes. Fantastic. Um, which I am looking forward to. Maybe we'll get a white Christmas. We are going to have opposite Christmas yes. experiences. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be doing the Jimmy Buffett thing. I'll be in shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. I've got Perry Como. It's cool. <laughs> um... <laughs> It's funny, one of my really good friends uh, moved to Chicago from the tri-state area recently, and she has a very large and extended family. Chicago um, is Chicago. even colder than Vermont, my God. Well, they used to be, she and her husband were the ones who kind of like kept everyone together and mm. wrangled the different parts of different families. That's funny, I was just discussing this with a much older woman whose parents had died, and she also has a huge family, and they like created a um, like family holiday over the youngest birthday, and they made that the day that the day all that, the aw. siblings get together. Okay. And I was thinking, oh my god, that's so interesting because I have such a big family, and we always go down to see my parents. Like, what's going to happen when they do pass? Right. Um, we want to keep up the you know family spirit um, because we're so close. Like. It's it's just interesting to hear how, how people, people deal with it. Exactly, how they get creative and stuff. She also, every year, has a sister thing at her house where she invites cute. all her sisters and a brother thing where they Aww. all come over and watch football. <laughs> I, know. I was like, cute. oh my God. <laughs> uh, 
Well, my friend took the opposite route. The past no. two holidays, they've been like, we're celebrating by ourselves. Oh, wow. Which is interesting, too, because I think they just got like tired of being the ones to always yeah. pull it together. Sometimes you need a break. Sometimes yeah. you need a break. Last year, I didn't go home for the first time ever. I don't know. I can't. I, I, you know, part of it, I get it. Like, there's, it's this pressure where... You know, if we just did these things like you're talking about this woman, like if we did them more throughout the year where we yeah, saw each other and made so an effort to, you know, and it is Because hard. as you get older, you each person is getting their own family exactly. and then you have to haul the whole damn family down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like it gets so complicated. Yes. And we're exactly that's the thing, too. Everyone's all over the place now. So it's not like. And other people's family want to spend Christmas with you. Right. So then you have to start negotiating. I already told I my future one. mother-in-law. You get that one. Every other year is here. I, <laughs> I'm taking James home for Christmas this year, but you're getting baby's first Christmas. And she's like, I'll take it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So baby's first Christmas will be next year. Next right? year. Oh. Well, she's technically in there right she's, now. She is, right? This is. <laughs> she's definitely there I was just talking about this I was like you know for James this is not starting until February right but for me this has been <laughs> going been on going. <laughs> <laughs> I spent nine months keeping this thing alive <laughs> and uh yeah I feel like you're probably about ready at this point yeah. post holiday especially <laughs> well this transitions nicely into our mother segment it does because you're a well, I see. I consider you a mother already at this point, you know. But well, I do have a dog and a cat. That's so. a bull. Yes, that's true. <laughs> I didn't mean like for me. I meant like as you're saying, you have been living with this being. Yeah, it's true. It's weird. Like I was also just saying the other day to um, Diana at an Interloop event, how untranslatable the like experience of being pregnant is. I can't even imagine. It's impossible to convey. It's so weird. It's bizarre. And like, <laughs> no, it's all the wonderful things as well. You know, it's heartwarming. Um, the baby just got hiccups the other day oh. for the first time. And that was like the first really like heartwarming. You're like, oh, you're, you're oh really God. there. It's really like endearing and cute. And James like put his hand on the belly and it was like vibrating. Oh. Yes. Oh, it was all the cute things. I'm blushing. All the cute things, mom. <laughs> um, but I was just saying that the <clears throat> experience of building a being in your body and then I haven't experienced this part yet, but it then being on the outside of your body, it's so weird and there's nothing like it like I can't even come up with an analogy to try to convey it to other people who aren't experiencing it my boyfriend like you know he's there he's a part of it right but he's still a little tertiary you know it's a, it's a different for sure and it's and weird. from what I can tell is that doesn't ever end you know like that is kind of the thing about moms and mothers in general it's that that bond is a real thing and yeah. whether you know life happens to everyone and and whether that relationship builds positively or not it's right. it's always there it's yeah, that, undeniable that origin yes. is never going to go anywhere <laughs> <laughs> you're stuck with me as your mother forever <laughs> but also i mean you know ah oh god just especially i guess we can't avoid right now all all of the the things happening with women and to women and about women mm. these days, it just makes me think even more how much respect we owe to the women who have carried us through. It is so remarkable. And 
it's just weird to think that we treat it as mundane. And it, on the other hand, it is kind of it's, mundane. Right. Everybody does it. You it's, know, it's every day. It's like both remarkable and mundane. Like uh, you kind of feel like a god. You're like this. I'm creating life. <laughs> <laughs> but then on the other hand, it's like, uh, calm down. All right. <laughs> Pregnant women are smug, right? <laughs> Have you seen that Tumblr? <laughs> No. <laughs> this is amazing. Oh god. Um well let's uh we have a we have a couple of pieces, right? To, yes, to we do. But before mothers. we hear the pieces of because mothers are um you know, obviously a great source of inspiration because Always. that bond is so inexplicable yes. and strange and hard to convey. Um, us writers, we love to explore the things that are difficult to convey. Um, so it's definitely a huge source of inspiration for our writers. And we hear about people's mothers all the time at the inner loop. We do. We do. <laughs> so we have a couple pieces from from that. But first, Courtney actually has a little reading for us about her mother. I do. And it's actually, it's it started out in, uh, we were just talking to another writer about drafts. Um, and the draft of this poem started out much more focused just on her. Um, mm. And then it kind of evolved and it incorporates both of my parents now, actually. But um, it's funny, when I was working on my thesis for, just a quick note on inspiration, when I was working on my thesis for grad school, um, I was putting in the dedication, and a lot of it was about nature writing and being in nature and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, and I had thanked my father for teaching me how to pee in the woods um, <laughs> and it. my mom was slightly offended until she saw the next line where it said or no I think it was thanks to my dad for making me pee in the woods and thanks to my mom for not making me pee <laughs> in the woods <laughs> so that's, that's kind of, great <laughs> yeah they do inspire us in, in many ways but I will read this uh, short poem for you uh, called Southern Pine Beetle one, there are rhythms that we do and do not feel. You look up at the trees and fail to consider the layers breathing beneath the bark. Consider the breath once your own returning. Two, my fingernails are my father's, picked but not bitten down to the quick, rough and white with jagged cuticles, an insult to the beds they rest in. I watch him absently scratch the brown cluster of cells that could be a tiny beetle on his cheek, his fingernail, my fingernail, digging out a cancer. 3. The southern pine beetle moved north because one day it realized it could stand the seismic shift of air. Now there are scores boring into the pitch of my pines, boring past their first line of defense. The trees are not going down without a fight, but last fall we had to fell at least five, the beetles having invaded, teeth past the hard, dried cells, and even the running sap meant to drown them. They call enzymatically to each other, reach out across the island to the mainland. Larvae multiply, break out, needles brown, skin sloths away, even as the turncoats within send the signal. Reverse SOS for more sweet cancers to arrive, more beetles to bore into us, the trees I mean. My mother comes to visit four. My mother comes to visit, and when she leaves, I am left with her skin. I brush it into a little pile on my jewelry stand, wipe it gently off the toilet seat, let it blow out of the car window. 
I have vacuumed three times since she's gone, and I still can't bring myself to siphon the traces she shed, because after all, won't I wish some day that I had kept it, her, skin. So, so the first couple times that I heard that poem, the first thing that sticks out is the skin. Mm-hmm. And that's what sticks with me about that poem. Mm-hmm. Anytime I think about it. And also that image of of piling up the skin comes to me all the time, weirdly. Does it? Because I know <laughs> yes. I feel really weird about that. <laughs> okay. It does. But it's, you know, that's what a poem is. Little things like just nail themselves into your brain. But that time, actually something... Diff- or the different aspect of the poem stuck out to me, which was the call, the calling mm. of the Beatles to one another, mm-hmm. and sort of like legacy because they leave the skin behind. And you talk about wanting to keep your mother's skin, and and that really came through. <laughs> that time. Maybe because I'm pregnant. Maybe you're feeling it that <laughs> and way, and I'm like tuned in. <laughs> so I. This is a little creepy, I know. Um, and my mom actually hates this poem. <laughs> she's she's so mad at me about it. Um, but because she, you know, on the surface, it's 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 not pleasant. A little mortifying. Yeah. Um, but really, so it's it's funny that you latch onto that part because that again that in the first draft that was kind of the the, the start and then it ended mm. up as the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're having this issue in in where my my parents live in New Jersey, um, with these invasive beetles that are killing the pine trees mm. um, that didn't used to live there, but with climate change can now survive. Mm. Um, and my mother planted these trees mm. around all around our property to create kind of a little fortress almost mm-hmm. around our house and nurtured them and watched them grow for years <laughs> and she's just heartsick because they're dying wow and it's this very complicated thing for us and for me because they're dying but also there's like this multiplication happening within and the way the hormones and the enzymes work it's all very there's just a lot going on at mm-hmm. once and I couldn't I don't know if I succeeded in in that, but it was that was my attempt to kind of pull all those things together. Yeah, I think it worked Great. quite well. Cool, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do have a couple more pieces from some of our inner loop writers on mothers, and just to warn you, the audio quality from our events varies. Sometimes you might hear dishes clanking in the background or people rustling. Sometimes we have helicopters overhead and sirens, um, but we think that gives you an idea of the relaxed atmosphere of our readings. So let's have a listen. This is called A Teachable Moment. My English teacher, Miss Trudy, came to our house last night. I could see her through the window, nervously swatting at her stringy brown hair, flattening it down and then teasing it up again as she made her way up the drive. At first I couldn't place her, it was so jarring seeing her outside of our classroom. She was wearing a red polka dot dress that was tight over her large frame with a button missing somewhere between her nipples and her navel. Then it hit me, the keys almost falling out of her purse, her pantyhose bunching in the back, visible as she waddle walked, her mouth frozen into a set pucker from years of holding her tongue when she probably wanted to explode at us. My mother was taking a bath, so I wriggled down from the oversized armchair where I was reading and walked up the stairs to intrude on her luxury, soaking in the tub with bath salts and cigarettes. The door was ajar. I poked my head in, even though I hated the smell. 
I could see the cigarette smoke mixed with the steam from the water curling out above her head. Mom, someone's at the door, I said. Is it Chuck? He's early, she said. No, it's not Chuck. Well, then who is it, coming at this hour? Don't tell me you invited a boy over. I rolled my eyes and backed out. I waited until I heard the water stop running and then went back downstairs. Miss Trudy rang the doorbell three more times, probably counting slowly between each elongated chime. I sat low in the armchair until I was almost horizontal and watched her. I liked her class well enough, though everyone gave her a hard time. The first time she showed she was a pushover was when she gave John Maloney detention and then changed her mind after he started jumping on his desk. And she was always disheveled. One sock didn't match the other, or her panty lines showed through her big flowy dresses, making herself a target for the boys who would shoot gum through straws, trying to hit her ass. I imagine she often went home and cried. Now my mother came down with her thick black hair piled high on top of her head in a bathrobe and opened the door to face Miss Trudy. My mother gave her a quick once-over, her eyes lingering a second longer at the spot where the button was missing. Miss Rocalt, Miss Trudy asked timidly at first, then more firmly, Miss Rocalt, can I come in for a minute? It really won't take long. You're Angie's teacher, right? My mother asked uncertainly. Yes, her English teacher, Miss Trudy. I really promise this won't take long. I just wanted to stop by and talk. I could tell my mother was confused and wondering if she should put on clothes. And then she was annoyed, and then she was really annoyed, and then she let Miss Trudy come in. She sat on a patch of the sofa that didn't smell so strongly like whiskey mixed with coffee and cleared her throat for what seemed like hours. Miss Rocalt, she started again, Angie is obviously a gifted writer. I just want you to know that. I mean, I hope you already know that. She'll probably end up with the honors ward at the end of the year. That's nice, my mother said, blowing a loose strand of hair out of her face. Well, but I do worry sometimes about the subject material, Miss Trudy said, fidgeting with the hem of her dress. And I just want to make sure everything is all right. I hope I'm not coming off too strongly, but I just think that concerned teachers can change lives. My mother looked at Miss Trudy like she was a water bug that had just emerged from the dark recesses of a drain. I waited, the anticipation in my chest ballooning. Well, what does she write about? Now Miss Trudy had my mother's full attention. She glanced at me as if telling me with her watery eyes that she was sorry to betray my trust like this. I responded by boring my eyes into her skull. Well, for starters, every single character chain smokes. If chimneys could talk, that's what they would all sound like. There are addictions to drugs and alcohol that are so pervasive that even the pets get drunk and high from being around the characters. <laughs> Miss Trudy stopped herself and looked around her crossed legs like a madwoman, as if there were cats and dogs she hadn't noticed in a drunken stupor beneath her feet. She couldn't see him, but I saw our very sober turtle, Hermit, wander behind the couch. She continued, And, well, I don't really know how to put this, but there is just a lot of very promiscuous sex. I mean, I don't even know all the positions that she, for an eighth grader, I mean, to know that, I just wonder. I pictured the other buttons popping off her dress while she talked, but she kept sitting there, crossing and recrossing her legs, fidgeting with the hem of her dress, stammering on about promiscuous sex. My mother gave me a quick flick of a glance and the skin around her lips was taut, and I knew she was about to kill either me or Miss Trudy, whomever she was closest to, me. Miss Trudy, some, many of the themes are just worrisome, and I just want to foster an honest, open dialogue with her parents. And while most of the students are not writing anywhere near her level, her stories still deal with very adult subjects, in my opinion. Very dark subjects. Miss Trudy paused, looking like she badly wanted to say something else, but stopped herself. Miss Trudy, I didn't remember the last time I saw my mother's face so red, like she had a fever. I could tell she was itching for a drink, and the kitchen was so close she could feel the chilled blast of the open fridge on her face as she scanned her options. But like me, she had to endure. In this moment, she was an extension of me, or I was an extension of her, or something. 
I'm not sure where Angie gets her ideas from. She shot me an ice cold look, but it's certainly not anything going on underneath this roof. She's exposed to the same things as all kids are now, I suppose. Isn't this creative writing, a way of expressing yourself, having an imagination? It's not like you found her diary. Well, all the same, writing can be very personal, so I just wanted to bring it to your attention. They both looked at me. In my opinion, the worst is the smoking, I said, looking at my mother. Smoking can kill. Bad mother. Anna pushes her daughter, Margaret, in the stroller through the hills in Glover Park to the zoo. They arrive at the tiger's enclosure. In this bright, exuberant afternoon of flickering tongues of bamboo, the tiger is lying in the center of the terraced grounds. Margaret strains over the railing, calling to it, demanding a reaction. The tiger walks down the mound to the edge of the olive green pond that separates them. The enclosure has steep walls with thick stripes of artificial wood. The tiger turns its back to them and pees in the water. The spray is powerful and stays suspended, like the dying shimmer of a 4th of July fireworks display. Then it drinks from the water where it has peed. Anna wonders if it is an act of rebellion. Then it plunges in, its head emerges, its ears sleek, its eyes reflecting the emerald leaves and light. Margaret leans over and calls to it. Anna holds her wriggling body firmly. It is a struggle to keep her under control. The cl tiger climbs out and settles in the dirt at the edge of the water. Anna thinks, we have created the allure of the tiger. It doesn't have a story without us. No meaning, no metaphor. It does not belong here. Yet, here it is, because we want to save it from extinction. It will die here. It is a thing we possess to imagine and toy with. This fierce animal has no power. The small body of the child is possessed with an energy her mother finds unbearable. She feels every desire to spank her, but she has never hit her. She has lost her temper, but it makes Margaret's face so sullen, Anna can feel the imbalance of power. She fears her daughter will become more uncontrollable. On cue, Margaret pummels her sneakers into her mother's thighs. Anna looks into the crowd and thinks she sees someone. The instant is so brief because, before doubt is even beginning to form, her grip loosens and the child has pushed off a torpedo. She kicks back into her mother's stomach with so much force she is catapulted through the air. Her mother falls back onto the path, hitting her head. The child enters the water, feet first. She comes up for air, more beaver than fish. Sleek, trained, she kicks with great force and is almost to shore. The tiger sees the dropping object. It plunges into the water. It has already reached the child. It takes her daughter's neck gently in its mouth, struggling to emerge as it carries the weight. It slides backward, and then with all its strength, it pulls the child from the water and sets her on the ground. The child puts up no resistance. Now she is safe, she sits hunched over, limp and very still. The tiger regards her for a moment as if she is a familiar. Then it turns away from Margaret and disappears. On the cab ride home, the child is quiet, chastened. She snuggles into her mother's chest. There is an iron bar in Anna's back. The iron twists and finds the slope of her shoulders and arm, 
driving into her fingers. It is cold and it makes her hands chilled from the marrow, feeding the blood with ribbons of ice water. Margaret is safe, but Anna feels only fury. She holds her daughter, but she is not able to speak. It isn't just shame. She sees with clarity that she will never be able to completely protect her child. Still, she actually believes with all her heart that they are deserving of safety, of grace. She doesn't want to become that person who doesn't actually like her children. That was A Teachable Moment by Corinne Lech and Bad Mother by Leah Mehta, reading at past Interloop events. There were some interesting mothers portrayed in those pieces, but what if your mother were a goldfish? Stay tuned for more. continuing our show on family and our segment on mothers. Earlier, I had the opportunity to interview Chelsea Horn about her piece entitled Goldfish Mother. Let's listen. Welcome, Chelsea. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's so great to have you on the show. Um, Chelsea is here to read her piece called Goldfish Mother. When Courtney and I found this piece in our inbox, we were blown away. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Courtney forwarded it to my personal email address and was like, I love this. Oh, wow. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. So we had to make room for you in the show. And then when we got to hear you read it out loud at the show, it was even more magical. Um, And I remember there a lot of people came up to you after you read and to give you compliments, right? Yeah, I had a really good reaction. Um, People felt uh, they really connected to the piece. And so it was really powerful and meaningful to me to get that sort of positive reaction back from the audience. And... I think you told me that this piece is as of yet unpublished, right? It is. So that must give you lots of encouragement because you haven't put it out in the world yet. I know. Officially. Yeah, so if there's any editors listening and they like the piece, it's totally available. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we go ahead and have a listen? You ready to read? Sounds great. All right, so this is The Goldfish Mother. The sun was shining when the grass turned blue and my mother became a goldfish. I'm a goldfish, she said. So it seems, I said. I'm yellow, she said. I'd say it's really more of an orange. Don't be contrary, she said. We looked at each other, me still in my chair where I was reading the morning paper, and her on the kitchen table where she lay on her yellow-orange side, her mouth puckering open and closed as she gasped for breath, her little fins quivering. I'm a goldfish, she said again. For we must remember that she was a fish, and fish don't have very good memories. You're my mother, I reminded her, in case she forgot. And she burst into tears and cried and cried, despite my reassurances that there really was no need to cry, and that I thought she was doing a fine job, a splendid job at being a mother, goldfish or not. She only cried more. The table was getting quite wet. I'm a goldfish, she sobbed. How can I be your mother? I filled a wide vase with water and held it to the edge of the table so my mother could wiggle her way inside. As she fell into the vase, I wondered, briefly, what her skin felt like now. 
Before, it was soft because she put shea butter on every morning and evening, but it was also crinkled in the way skin crinkles as one ages. Yellow looks quite good on you, I tried. I placed the container in front of me so we could see eye to eye, and she looked at me and stopped crying, yet tears still fell from her black bubble eyes. As we looked at each other, the vase started to overflow with her tears. I felt my slippers get wet. It's okay to be a goldfish, I said. I still love you. My mother swam in circles, chasing her wispy tail and said, Yes, I love you too. She swam some more, another circle. But who are you? The water in the dining room was at my knees as I thought about how to answer her, wondering if I would spend the rest of my life reminding her, reminding myself of who we were. I'm a goldfish, she said as she floated out of the vase and I stood up as the water rose to my shoulders. You're a goldfish mother, I agreed. I watched my newspaper drift away on the current of her wake, the crossword puzzle incomplete. That's right, she said, as if she were as if she were remembering. And the grass is blue. The whole room, the whole house, filled with water, and Mother swam merrily, darting about the kitchen, preparing sandwiches for lunch, asking if I preferred turkey or ham, and I gasped for air, not knowing if I was drowning or swimming. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to say that after every piece that I love. I love it. Um, so I have to ask for a piece so fantastic, which is one of the things that I think is so appealing about it, um, is that you don't know exactly why you love it, but you love it. Um, what inspired it? Well, at the time, I was really obsessed with goldfish. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it is about goldfish. I mean, you might look at them and think they're a pretty dull uh, fish, but... We think of them as creatures that don't have a lot of memory. Like there's that old uh, saying that uh, goldfish only has three or five second memory and then right. it's going to go away. I think that's been disproven. I'm not completely sure, but I think uh, we still like to believe this, the short term memory thing. So I was really fascinated by goldfish and our ideas of the ways that we remember things, the ways that we forget things and uh, how this can affect the way that we live our lives. And how did you draw that connection to motherhood? Well, like you mentioned earlier in the segment, that uh, mothers are really important uh, growing up. They're, I mean, for me, she's my best friend, too. Uh, but it's, it's about losing something that means uh, a lot to you, but realizing that maybe it's not even they're lost. Mm. So uh, it's playing around with that idea of, of memory and loss, I think. Yeah, it's very evocative. Um, so what, what did you find the most challenging about writing the piece? Actually, being able to draw that connection um, to a more powerful uh, like emotion than just saying, oh, that's fantastic, that's wonderful, it's cute. Because mm -hmm. the, actually the first draft of this I wrote, I got that, that's a very cute story back mm. uh, as, as response. And that, that bothered me, that disturbed me, because there's something much more powerful here. And I think it is that, that loss of... Um, something very deep and meaningful to yourself. And so I, I was really struggled with trying to connect the character and uh, the premise mm -hmm. to evoke those feelings. Yeah, I feel like um, one of the major challenges, I think, with uh, using metaphor, and especially one so fantastic, is asking yourself, like, how far do you take it? Um, 
because you kind of have to take it far enough for it to spread its wings and and give room for that kind of like deep meaning. But if you take it too far, then then you lose people. You lose it. Yeah, yeah. And it, you lose the whole I- ideal behind it, and it makes it then that that cute era where it's, it means exactly. like, ah, oh, that's nice and that's what's wonderful. But uh, sometimes the only way we can deal with reality is by looking at on like the fantastic. And so if we can see truth there, then maybe it can make it less scary in normal life. Yeah, yeah, it's it's wonderful. Um, I have to ask, what does your mom think of it? <laughs> Since we're talking about real mothers. <laughs> yes, uh, she's uh, always very supportive of my work. And so uh, she was actually one of the ones who pushed me to delve deeper and, nice. and to keep uh, pulling at the things that are hard uh, and not to worry about it getting uh, too emotional because... Mm. Uh, it, it it can't be something this serious. It won't. We can't really go over the top with it. So, uh, she actually helped me to push further. Yeah, and what we were talking about the metaphor and everything. I think the room filling up with water sort of rose the stakes a little bit. Yes, because it's that question of like drowning or swimming. Are you going to die or are you going to succeed? Uh, what is how you feel about it? The what actually happens. So it's a little bit of an Alice in Wonderland moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's really well done. And um, I hope that you get it published soon. How long did it take you to, to get a good final version? You know, it's it's interesting because it took me 10 minutes to write the first version. Like it was just wow. one of those spur of the moments, like I got to get this piece out. But I've definitely been uh, toying with it for over a year. I keep coming back to it because this is a piece, it's, it's short, it's little, um, but that has a lot of meaning to me. And so I keep uh, trying to make it better and making it better. Well, I think, it, I think it's there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing it with us. Um, what are you doing for the holidays? For the holidays? Oh, my gosh. Uh, trying to catch up with, uh, with work, uh, get some writing done, enjoy, uh, hopefully, the winter weather. Uh, I, I love snow, so I'm waiting oh, for fantastic. it. fantastic. Well, yeah. it's on its way. <laughs> yeah. And do you live in the area? Does I your do. Family? Uh, yeah, so I'm a, I live here in D.C., and this is where I stay for the holidays, too. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm so glad that you could be on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Stay tuned to hear from our writers who are inspired by the other side of the spectrum, our fathers. <laughs> gather. Gather. <laughs> gather, um, You can gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. Started. We're gonna get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. This is the Inner Loop Radio. Rachel Kuntz and Courtney Sexton here, continuing with our show on family. Let's talk about fathers. I don't know about you, Courtney, but my father was a very dominant figure in my family. <laughs> My dad. <laughs> oh man, I would I wouldn't say he's dominant. I, I mean, I I love him to pieces. Uh, we had. <laughs> he's, I know. I'm just like trying to figure out. I mean, he's an incredibly intelligent, you know, uh, intellectual person, but at the same time, like such a hippie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like it's funny you should mention that because my father is like obsessed with studying and knowledge and Plato and all these like super intellectual things so but that's he's where you also... get from <laughs> I like I, I hope so <laughs> um, but he's also like a southern 
Well, uh, I wouldn't say hick exactly, but <laughs> <laughs> he's, you know, he has to oscillate between that like southern twang mm-hmm. and the proper English that he learned because he's a linguistics major. Okay. You know, so he has like the two, he has many sides of himself. It's, I think. it's interesting. So I think in some of the most interesting men that you meet, and I, again, like I idolize my dad, so it's kind of like. Of you course. Know. Yeah, of course. Daddy's as, little girl. As one does. <laughs> um, but what I have always been so in awe of is his ability to talk to anyone, mm. which I have not quite learned yet. I see my brother. You're pretty good at it. Mm. I mean, I beg to differ. <laughs> I, I, but I feel real awkward on the inside. <laughs> well, we all feel awkward on the inside. You're never going to get rid of that. <laughs> I don't know. I see it more as my brother ages mm. does he take after your father a bit and and in other ways not at all mm-hmm. but I see how he has learned this kind of skill mm-hmm. uh, from my dad and similarly to what you're saying you know my dad grew up with a family of farmers and hunters mm-hmm. and so he very much can go into that world. Oh, is that where you get your nature kick from? Yeah. That is lovely. <laughs> we, <laughs> we walk in the woods a lot. That is one of our, our things. But um yeah, so he there's there's like that world, but mm-hmm. then he's an attorney and so oh, wow. that world also then, multifaceted. Right. <laughs> so this I think the most interesting men, fathers included, have this kind of ability to to just be where they are. Does that make sense? Be where they are. Like Say meet more. you, meet you where you are. I guess is a better way of saying yeah. it. And I think um, because fathers are uh, traditionally the the guider, right? You know, the mother's the nurturer. The father sort of guides, pushes you, right? And so I think it's nice to have a father that is multifaceted, yes, and has passions, but and and different just. All kinds of different um, facets, <laughs> if you will, um, so that you can connect with one of them mm-hmm. or many of them or, you know, you have more options so that when he does drive you, you know, he can, like you say, meet you where you are. Right. And don't get me wrong, you know, dads can drive us crazy sometimes. Too. Um, yes. <laughs> Like every member of the family. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of fathers, uh, Rachel, I believe you have a piece about your father to share with us. I do. Let's hear it. <laughs> this is called poker. In the evenings, the adult would clear off the the adults would clear off the table, still warm from the dinner pots, and pull out their coins, still warm from their pockets. The table is slick, the kind that lets the cards really slide. There are two decks, one in play, one pre-shuffled and ready for the next hand. One red, one blue. That way they know nobody's cheating. The dealer carefully follows each step. Shuffle well, but not for too long. Offer a cut to the right, announce the rules, make sure everyone is anteed up, deal clockwise. If so much as one step is missed, the dealer loses his deal. A mix of the two upper generations sits around the table, plus maybe an older cousin or two. The younger kids straggle in and out. A kid or two gets invited onto an uncle's knee to be his good luck charm. Maybe one uncle shoes his kid away after his cards turn for the worse. 
Maybe one squeezes his and slops a kiss on its cheek, scraping his whiskers and trailing beer, beer fumes against the tender skin, telling the kid to pull in the lucky winnings. The aunts play quietly. They don't make a big to-do about their luck. The older generation doesn't bother with the kids, Granny and Elbow, Grandpa Ivan. They concentrate on the game and make sure not to mix up their dip-spittin' can with their beer-sippin' one. Daddy would sometimes let the kid on his lap play a round or two, the kid betting for him without Daddy even looking at his hand. His mama would scoff at him, telling him if he ain't serious, he ought to put his hard-earned money right back in his pocket. Or Elbow would get furious and threaten something like, if he lets that kid throw so much as a wooden nickel into that pot without even taking a gander at them cards, I'm going to come over that table and jerk that kid straight into next week. Daddy would laugh, a deep, wide-open laugh, but then he'd say, all right and take his hand from the kid. The kid in daddy's lap would sink low or slip off because every person at that table, even my dad who loves to push the limits, knows there's a line you just don't cross at the poker table. Even though they're gambling with their money, they ain't playing. <laughs> <clears throat> I love that. <laughs> um, I love that when you start reading it, you immediately go there. Yeah. You know, we're sitting around the table with you, with the family, but then you're cheating and you're sipping. <laughs> and, you, you know, you were talking about how your dad ad- adopts yeah, that southern twang. Southern yeah. <laughs> and, and you feel that. And I feel you doing it too, yeah. which is like, if that's, you know, those are the things that make the piece come alive. Those little like nuance of language. <laughs> yeah. It gives you a sense of, of, my dad's personality too <laughs> yeah also just the you know understanding and the line and knowing when and where to draw it but I have the image of the kid and I love how you say a kid because there are several of you in your family <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thousands running around right at all times. <laughs> but I love that image of the slinking down or off because you, again you can just like that little detail you can imagine so well of sitting in in a family member's lap as a child and then just the kind of like slow slink away when you get bored or you're told to leave or yeah. you know <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny because um, we lived in Houston and we would drive to Roan's Prairie, it's called, okay. <laughs> um, in rural Texas where all of my aunts and uncles lived. And there's always a poker game. Even, even when I go back today, 20 years later, um, there's always a poker game. And it's funny, the last time I went to Texas, and I do get the southern draw the second I step off the plane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm like at the adult table now playing cards, right? Isn't that weird? But then I see all my little cousins like doing their own little version of mm-hmm. the games that we used to play. Um, and I even heard one of my cousins go, "You lie like a rug," which is <laughs> <laughs> a favorite saying of my dad's. And it was just so I don't know what the word is heartwarming to see um, how the generations how cyclical kind yeah, of time exactly can be. yeah it's amazing. Um, well, Rach, thanks for sharing that piece and sharing a bit about your, your family <laughs> and your dad with us. Um, let's listen to a few of the authors from our past events who are also inspired by their fathers, uh, from a classic father to an unconventional father to being a father. Lancaster. 
The car moves slowly as the clouds, while farther alternatives, oh, father, I'm sorry, alternates between camera and wheel. Children stare, their faces turned as they hang wash or fly on scooters down the dusty roads. All around me, there is farmland like picnic blankets laid down in soft rows, and cows chew lazily to the rhythm of wind on their hides. A buggy turns in front, Cinderella's carriage to me, a candid photo to my father, and he holds up his camera to stop time. But it is already, it is frozen already, a beautiful fossil town we have unearthed together. So I put a small hand on his arm and we watch. Um, and so this piece is called Beach Bumster and the Reefers. It's almost morning before my father stumbles home from his latest client and takes us to our spot in the mangroves. Swaying ankle deep in salt water, he rakes his fingers through the fine black mud, slow, like it's tangled hair. He's looking for oysters. Marie Claire's go nuts for the ship boy, he slurs, makes him want to fuck. He thumbs a shell clean and tosses it on shore where I crack it open with a rock. He's wearing new jeans, no shirt, flaunting the clean lines of muscle that keep us fed. I tell him I want to be just like him, and he laughs. I tell him I'll farm, and he calls me a fool. Fisher or farmer, bumster or priest, the Gambia, she's a bitch to us all, just look around. The land buckles under the weight of the rains that never came, though we begged. Life lies dormant in this bleached landscape, blank as a page until the first rains pen life from the ground. Yes, we remember the smell of rain at dawn, inshallah this year, this year. And afterwards, the hum of dusk, the cool gasp of night. But meanwhile, students hitchhike to school on truck beds, eyes closed and dry mouthed. And facing east, vendors perform their ablutions in single beads of water, kneading the damp. In the village, ancient baobabs grow pregnant with the bones of holy men and papered prayers, and in the city, small boys beg tin cans to their elbow. Its contents rattle like dying breath, coins to secure paradise for anyone with spare change. My father splashes back to me, jeans damp, and he tosses a few broken shells back into the water. Tababs always pay big money for love and war, he says. Be a soldier, kid. A bumster by trade. He tells me he knows something of heaven and hell, that the real heaven exists at the bottom of a bottle and on the other side of the ocean with all the lonely white women. Sway. I am swaying an infant. I am picking glue fuzz from the floor. I am eating the last box brownie. I am lying on the open carpet. I am piling on the dirty socks. I am growing my beard. My daughter frowns the way I frown. My wife's donated lips. My brow is deep ridged. My potato chips are all dressed. I am a literal organ donor. I dodge police in my four cylinder. They charge me for their services and say that I am sober, I say that I am fine. Thanks. 
That was Landscape by Kelly Ann Jacobson, Beach Bumster by Aaron Hahn, and Sway by Paul Futo. Up next, we'll move from the obvious influence of parents to the more subtle influence of older brothers and sisters. discussing family on this episode and um we now want to talk about siblings so i have one older brother and rach how many brothers and sisters do you have and where do you fall in the line i have three brothers and two sisters and i am the youngest oh the baby, I'm the baby. <laughs> so three boys and three girls three boys and three girls it's pretty right. even right yeah it's not bad <laughs> And you guys live all over the place, right? Uh, we do. We're scattered all over the Northeast. Um, my oldest brother stayed in Florida where my parents are. Okay. And the rest of us, um, Boston, Baltimore, D.C., just New York. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Got the eastern seaboard covered. <laughs> Got the whole eastern seaboard, you know, so that way when my parents come to visit, they can just... just st- one stop after yeah, another. exactly. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Take the northeaster train up and just go. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it was wild growing up uh, I... in my... Because <laughs> you have one brother. One brother. Right? <laughs> and we're just shy of four years apart. So, like, we were close as siblings, but also, you know, by the time we were teenagers, we're... You know, it's we were pretty in, far. Yeah, we we're in different, different. But worlds. I can see how one brother, four years older, could be like a huge influence. He definitely was, and and he is actually um, a poet himself. Well, that is quite the influence. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a little known fact, but <laughs> <laughs> does he try to hide it? He doesn't try to hide. I think um, his life has turned in other directions, and he doesn't do it as much as he did at one time. Um, but he he has some pieces that even still I think about mm. from from when he he was a teenager that he wrote and wow. it's funny. But again, of course, like being the younger sister and idolizing your older brother, like <laughs> of, of course, course you think they're you amazing. You think his poems are the best poems <laughs> that were ever written. <laughs> um, but yeah, he uh, he has a he has a sensibility for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. I feel it. I feel a big influence from my sisters. Um, two older sisters. And they just sort of like hang out there and I just call them for everything Mm -hmm. advice about everything. Um, My oldest sister is very pragmatic. Um, and so she is amazing for advice. Right. I trust her advice on all financial things. Is she the one who I have met as well? I don't know. I, th- I feel think, like you've met I think both she's of given them. me advice too, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, she, yeah. And she's so confident yes. about her answers that even if she's wrong, you're like, okay, yeah. Yeah, you know, like you feel very confident <laughs> about following her advice. That's a great person to have in your life. <laughs> it really, it's amazing. And then <laughs> my um, sister, below her um was obviously 
obviously closer to me in age. Right. And um, so she was the idol, idolized one. Got you it. know, like wanting to do everything <laughs> she did. She wore all the black band t-shirts and then I stole yep. all the black <laughs> band t-shirts. I would sneak into her room when I was a, a teenager and, and she was out of the house, of course, and listen to all her CDs on uh-huh. her stereo. <laughs> that is, you know, that's the funniest thing. Musical influence of siblings. Yeah. That is huge, like, right? Huge. huge. Fifth huge. grade, I was listening to Nine Inch Nails all because of her. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, okay, my brother has given me lots of great music. I, I'm going to say, like, I've over repaid him back on that like <laughs> i i kind of am the one being a like, music yeah, reviewer now totally <laughs> um but <laughs> i still joke i'm like god ryan you know like all those jam bands that we listened to <laughs> guster and dave matthews i'm like what were we thinking but then there was some really good stuff too so yeah it's funny it's great i love i love having older siblings yeah Oh, I would definitely not want to be an older one. I know. It's so much pressure and you don't you don't know what to do with those things. You're not like a parent. No. You don't you don't know responsibility. Plus, like you have it way easier the second time, you know, because your parents have been like, well, for you this sixth time you're like, What do you mean the second time? time like wait who are you again (laughs) yeah I mean I feel like it's like they've like gotten their like anxieties out you know so when you come down take it out on the oldest like my sister Jen would be like uh yeah a few (laughs) (laughs) yeah well being the oldest is a big burden yeah it's funny I see it even now so I my my brother now has a son and a daughter and uh, his son is the older one. They're they're only two years apart. Um, but his son is so serious. Yeah. Even, even at like four years old. Yeah. Like, so serious and and like stoic and has to like do everything just so. Right. And, and meanwhile, his sister's this just like wild thing <laughs> rolling around. You know. Wow, that's funny. It is. That's it's... the perfect personification, like uh, epitome. Of yeah. Older and younger. But they do. You know. They're. There's something about the sibling relationship that's just so special, you know, you that I don't think even when you're in it you can define or It's so true. And the best part about it is growing old. I think Yeah. It's weird because it's you kind of on the surface you think oh the the siblinghood the most important part of the siblinghood is when you're young and you're in the same house right. and, and you're, you're going through that experience to together with each other mm-hmm. but actually like the older i get the m- the more rich the sibling experience seems to become in my like for each one of my siblings um i just feel the relationship grows and changes and you know, you change obviously so Absolutely. much and to, to, I don't know, you're, you're like forced to kind of stick with these people, whereas friends can come and go. Mm-hmm. Like you have to watch their development over their entire lives and it's fascinating. And sometimes you grow a little bit apart and you might grow totally. closer together. Yep. Um, but that something about the experience um, of you're not going anywhere. You're never going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're in this. Yeah, we're freaking in this. <laughs> um, and we always have the commonality of the parents, which is, which is such and a that huge... childhood. 
Yeah, and yeah. your childhood and background, and yeah, it's it's unmatched, I think, in in anything else in life to just have always that anchor. It is. It is this phase of being adult siblings is is definitely something that I've been thinking a lot about and yeah. and again like you go as you said and I'm sure you guys have much more drama like <laughs> between oh, <yeah>. the <laughs> six of you but like you know there are times there was a period when I didn't speak to my brother for a year and it was heartbreaking yeah we made our way back to each other you know and again yeah, because exactly. that's just what you do yeah you're not going anywhere <laughs> you can take a break but you're not going anywhere <laughs> Uh, well, we have two pieces on big big sisters that speak to my experience and one piece on a big brother that speaks more to Courtney's experience. So maybe you can relate to these pieces as yeah. well. Uh, this first piece is called Sister Golden Hair. My sister Linda and I never swapped sweaters or made giggly prank calls to boys. We didn't argue over the TV or slam bathroom doors. She was my only sibling and 11 years older. She was howdy duty in Vietnam. I was Sesame Street and Hinkley. What was there to fight about? To talk about it all, though I wanted to. On younger nights, before Linda got her driver's license and could escape in the Firebird Daddy bought her, himself really, on a drinking binge, I could slip cat quiet into her room and brush her hair while she conjugated French verbs or talked to boyfriends on the phone her pink polished fingertips weaving in and out of the coiled cord. Linda's hair was shimmering, glossy gilt, climped in a clip. The brush slipped through it like warm honey. She rarely acknowledged me as I worked, but that miracle mane in my small hands was intimacy enough. One spring afternoon, Linda, sweaty-faced, slapped her school books on the kitchen table, popped open two tabs from the fridge and handed one to me. Folding laundry, my mother protested this uncharacteristic brashness, but Linda waved her off and shuffled me upstairs. She brought no homework and took the phone off the hook. Sitting in her chair, she untied her ponytail and grinned at me wildly in the mirror. I knew well what drunk was, and Linda was not, yet she hummed with that same sad energy, simultaneously excited and exhausted. Confused, I reached for the brush, but she stopped me. No, let's roll it. I had always dreamed of rolling her hair, but she never let me. Now the Clairol curling set and my trust began to warm. As I pinned in each nubby, nubby roller, Linda began to talk breathlessly about everything. Spring break in Daytona, her prom dress, college in the fall. She repeated certain details, winking blue sequins, the dormitory cafeteria waffle bar, as if she dreamt of them constantly, or maybe she had to. When I finished, Linda leapt up and opened her verboten LP carrying case that she toted to her countless friends' rec rooms. She placed Cool in the Gang on the turntable, ladies' night, then Michael Jackson, The Who. By the last We Don't Get Fooled Again, we were clasping hands and spinning, singing, the loosening rollers orbiting Linda's head like carnival swings, she hadn't touched me since Christmas family photos. I was still laughing at this foreign, fun Linda as she sat down again and I tugged the rollers from the golden spirals they left bouncing behind. But now she was silent, her smile dissolved and her eyes darkened as she told me about what had happened that day. Daddy had been drinking for a week straight. Our mother had confiscated his shoes and his truck keys. 
But desperate for more booze and with no bars nearby in our Bible Belt hamlet, he sniffed out the spare Firebird keys, walked to the high school, and took Linda's car. Students watched him stumble barefoot across the parking lot. They snickered as the homecoming queen was forced to wobble home in platform sandals. Yet with each step, Linda felt more free. This was the final humiliation. No more stolen money or steering dates around his sour, drooling body splayed across the living room floor. And come September, she was gone for good. Except, she realized, I wouldn't be. Like her, I would have to go it alone. And she hadn't prepared me for the heavy mantle that waited. But she was trying now, and that was enough. I didn't care about tomorrow. I was happy simply to brush her hair, rub those shining strands between my fingers like a rosary, a small ritual of thanks for today alone. I'll be reading a flash piece called Russian Dolls. When Natalie came home to Omaha the summer after her junior year abroad, she brought back a Russian nesting doll and a new name. Call me Natasha, my sister said. Natasha, she explained, was a Russian nickname for Natalia. I didn't understand how a word with the same number of letters could be a nickname for something else. But I didn't tell her that. Just like I didn't complain that her hand-me-down sundresses and t-shirts were too big for me. Though I was as flat as Nebraska and looked like the kind of girl the wind could knock over if it blew too hard, I'd grow into them eventually. I was almost in junior high. She called me Birdie because I was little and saw everything. Like how that summer, Natalie, Natasha, started wearing red lipstick and smoking cigarettes behind the shed with Nick, her boyfriend. Another time, I saw them making out on her bed. Nirvana was playing on the radio. Before I looked away, I saw his hand reach up her thigh. You and me are the same, Bertie, she said, as she carefully brushed a tangle of my knotted hair on that summer night when she gave me the doll. One day, we'll both leave this place for good, she told me. This one's me, she said, putting the brush down and reaching for the doll. She took it apart in the middle, in the middle, in the middle. And this one's you. She held the one that was left, the tiny white one, in the palm of her hand, like a baby bird, and smiled at me in the mirror. Natalie went missing, they say, driving her Lincoln on the way to Lincoln. But she'd be back, surely. Maybe she was lost. Maybe she ran away. Maybe someone took her. Maybe they killed her. Maybe they buried her. Maybes always lead to other maybes. Her presence subtracted, hours add up to days, to weeks, to months, to seasons, to years. You look just like her, is what some people who knew her, know her, often say. Maybe, I reply. But there are more than echoes of her in my skin and bones. She is, was, my blood. Sometimes I imagine I see her staring back at me when I look into the mirror behind the nesting doll, on the vanity in the dorm, at the college from which she never graduated. It's the year after the Twin Towers fell, the summer after my freshman year. One night, I go to a party across campus. I see a guy with dark hair and blue jeans smoking on the balcony and ask him for a cigarette. We smoke and he tells me about Moscow and the gray fog that hangs over the city. We make out to in bloom. 
My red lipstick bleeds onto his lips. I feel his hand searching under my white dress. What's your name, he asks. I smell the smoke on his breath and see her face mirrored in his eyes. Call me Natasha, I almost say, disappearing into his mouth, into her name. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you for letting me be here. This is a story called Restless. My brother and I paced outside the bar and after a while sat on the curb. The sunset had started over the ocean and down the hill past the docks. My hopes felt more and more misplaced as the sky reddened. We decided to give up waiting for our dates. It seemed clear that they were not coming. So, so Sam and I headed inside and up to the second story patio. I asked the barman for beer and he poured too. The cool glass sweat in the summer heat and smudged a watercolor ring onto the paper coaster. We leaned on the tall wooden bar and Sam shook a cigarette out of a pack that he kept in his pocket. Cupping his hand against the breeze, he lit it, inhaled and puffed the smoke over the railing as the sun sank behind a final row of clouds. Sam asked me, have you ever heard of the woman so beautiful she can kill a man by walking past? As she goes by, some who venture another look turn too quickly and snap their necks. He gave another puff and explained that an ambulance follows her down the street and loads up the men left flopping in her wake. You think it'd be worth it, I asked. Sam laughed, turning his glass and looking at the swirling beer. I took my last sip and the wind pushed the coaster off the bar and over the patio's ledge. We began the next round as the band set up in the corner. The red sky gave way tonight and the music began. More came and crowded the patio. The evening carried on and the people danced and sang. The barman tilted glass after glass under the tap while the musicians reared their instruments and the people jumped and shouted, demanding more drinks and more music. Some talked into their neighbor's ear, taking turns like a string and tin can conversation. The tile floor, sticky in patches, vibrated slightly. A gust swept up a pile of napkins and threw them from the glowing pulsing patio out to the black sky. After midnight, the barman climbed his counter and waved over the crowd, pointing to the watch on his wrist closing time and we spilled into the street. The wind yanked at skirt hems, hair, and jackets, pushing all the patrons home. Thunder rumbled and the charcoal clouds low over the ocean. At that, Sam grabbed my shoulder. I want to see the storm, he said. Well, might as well meet it at the docks. As we approached down the hill, we saw waves crash and charge against the pylons that moored the dock. Mist from smashed seawater floated in hazy spheres around the lampposts. No rain yet. We walked to the end and brought our toes, just proud of the edge. In a flash of lightning, I glimpsed an outline, or x-ray of the clouds in her workings. I held up my arms and yelled. Sam yelled too, and to my surprise, the water receded from shore, uncovering a brown muck below. A wave swelled in the distance, growing taller, taller than the pylons of the lampposts or any of the waves that preceded it. At peak, the wall of water seemed to pause and consider mercy. I lost sight of myself in the height and forgot to run. The moment passed and the wave fell, knocking me down to my hands and knees. I spat out salt water, opened my eyes and looked for Sam. Where had he gone? I started to rise when a second wave hit, this one crushing me flat against the concrete dock. When the water cleared, I saw my brother crawling away from the edge. Get up. Get going. We scrambled up and away, frantic and bewildered like dogs that had tested an electrified fence. Panting under a lamppost, we saw that the other was bleeding. I turned my arm and inspected the wound. A smear of blood diluted with seawater covered my scraped forearms. Sam gave a snort. 
and then I started to smile. Then we began to laugh, wet, bloody, and happy as the storm raged around us, and we remembered why. That was Sister Golden Hair by Laura Boswell, Russian Dolls by Stephanie Bento, and Restless by Jonathan Charlton. Stay tuned for a little Christmas send-off. going home this holiday season or maybe staying where you are with your new family or perhaps hiding from your family altogether (laughs) in your faraway city we hope that today's show has inspired you uh but before we do let you go off to your respective holiday (laughs) adventures (laughs) plans uh we have one more writer to hear from and he decided not to go home one year uh Silent prayer to the big top at Circus Circus, December 25th. Don't let me die in Vegas on the strip alone tonight. I know it's Christmas day and this hotel is family friendly. I'll live another couple years, get filthy rich, a progressive jackpot winner, poker player. Don't let me die on Vegas in the strip yet. Something tells me life ain't over till it's fucked me up some more, and I'm okay. I'm only 31. I want to live until I've drank more than my mother did when she conceived my white half-brother. Maybe one day I'll make a gravestone of the strip. If I'm lucky, a hep C hooker will kill me gently, slowly. When I go, they'll say he's only 33, but damn, he lived. I want to have a story that's worth it. I mean a poem, of course. Holidays aren't meant for dying. Vegas, I'm not all in. I'll ride the carousel. I've barely lived. That's my favorite Christmas piece. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's certainly one of those that like <laughs> sticks with you. <laughs> that was Silent Prayer to the Big Top at Circus Circus, December 25th by Elijah Mendoza. And that's our show. Join us next month for our show on writerly New Year's resolutions. To find out more about us or submit to read at our next event, please visit www.theinnerlooplit.com. The Inner Loop would like to thank Andrew Logan for our theme music, Mark Buckskimper for our logo, and James Skinner for technical support. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a little review on iTunes or any other streaming <laughs> site you use. Uh, our review could be what inspires the next person to tune in. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy holidays, everyone, and happy writing. Right on.